Hi, I'm Richard Niles, conducting you through another fabulous edition of The Arrangers. Tonight, we're heading over to San Clemente, California, to meet one of the largest and liveliest figures in the history of arranging. Known for his use of humor, contrast, and color, his heavy metal brass was as fat as a hippo and as brassy as cat in EastEnders. His saxes swooped and dove like mildly stoned eagles, and his strings were as lush as he was. He was called the guru of arrangers, the daddy of them all, Mr. Billy May. Billy has the most subtle sense of humor of any composer or arranger I've ever heard of. There's an implicit bounce to his writing. He has a production capacity that equals probably five of any other arrangers put together. One of the things that you can say about Billy May is that he's an incredible master of all trades, incredibly versatile. That's something you often hear people say about him. The entire approach to using saxophones, to using brass, was something that piqued my imagination, and it still does. He always really wanted to be an arranger from the time he was a kid, but he played trumpet as well. There was always a lot of wit, and you never knew quite what to expect. An arrangement was always fun to listen to. Fun indeed, and Billy May's life in music went from the sublime of Sinatra to the ridiculous of Tweety Pie. Today, he may not be as well-known to the public as Nelson Riddle, but he arranged for Frank, Nat King Cole, Ella Fitzgerald, Peggy Lee, Glenn Miller, and for the master, Duke Ellington. His hard-drinking and outrageous sense of humor never interfered with his superb musicianship and talent. The fastest arranger in the business, he was even a ghostwriter for other fine arrangers like Paul Weston. One collaborator said, he was the only man I knew who could conduct a full orchestra and chorus when he was stone drunk. Musicians loved working with him for the sense of fun in his personality and his music. The guys knew they wouldn't be sitting there unless May considered them the best, so they relaxed and had a ball. Now 85 years old, Billy's memory is as clear as the tinkle of a triangle as he takes us right back to the beginning of his love affair with music. I've had some piano lessons when I was a little kid, but I didn't practice, which is something I regretted all my life. But uh, I had this mattering knowledge of the keyboard, and that's all. And then when I got into high school, uh, there was an opening in the band, and I just felt like I wanted to learn a little bit more music, and so I started playing the tuba in a high school band. I was interested in arranging too because I couldn't figure out why the 
tuba just had such a dull part when I was such a terrific tuba player, you know. <laughs> The teacher told him if he ever wanted to play a solo and get off the oompa oompa that a tuba is uh, famous for, he'll have to write an arrangement himself. So he did. Jack Myrtle is the author of The Music of Billy May. And he's been hooked on arranging, shall we say, ever since. That first arrangement was a brass quintet of the Herman Hupfeld tune when Yuba plays the rumba on the tuba. Of course, there was no music for it. He had to listen to it, a version of it, over the radio and copy it down from that. You've been listening to Corns of Pop, an original release to Spotlight Review by CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System, for listeners in the United States. This program has been rebroadcast for United States servicemen and women overseas. Sergeant Russ Thompson speaking. This is the United States Armed Forces Radio Service, the voice of information and education. Brad Bigelow curates the fabulous website SpaceHPop.com. His early career was really the route of many of the big band era composers and arrangers, which is he started as a musician himself. He started as a working uh, band member in the brass section. And in those days, as the bands were touring around doing nightly concerts, often uh, multiple shows during the night, there was a tremendous demand for material and an arranger who could quickly take a tune and write it and orchestrate it for the uh, particular group that he was working with was the right-hand man of any band leader. The band leader who was to make the first big impact on Billy's career was the hard-drinking, skirt-chasing Charlie Barnett. Barnett's band had the reputation for emulating their leader, playing music that was somewhat wilder than the rest of the bands on the scene, and this extrovert style appealed to the young trumpeter-arranger, Billy May. 1938, Charlie Barnett's band came through town, and I went out to see him, and the band was very thrilling to me. So I made a couple arrangements for him, and they ran him down, and he made a deal with me, $5 in arrangement, and so I made about four or five for him and sent him in. I never heard any more from him. And then about six months later, early in 1939, I heard him broadcasting from uh, the famous store in New York. So I wrote him a letter, care of the famous store, asking him for my money, you know. And instead he called me and offered me a job. Donald Clark is the author of The Rise and Fall of Popular Music and The Penguin Encyclopedia of Popular Music. After some fits and starts, he ended up uh, working for Barnett full-time and having the time of his life because everybody had a ball who worked for Charlie Barnett. And then he created one of the biggest hits of the entire swing era, which was Charlie Barnett's record of Cherokee. It's a fun tune. It later became a favorite of modern jazzers because of, uh, they, they liked improvising on it. I guess it's got wide open chords or something that you can fool around with. ¶¶ 
With regard to Cherokee, he wrote for four different sections, trumpet, trombone, saxophone, and rhythm. And he got the basis of this arrangement in his head on a bus. He didn't write it down, and this is something that has stood him in very good stead over the years. He kept it in his head till he got to the studio. And then he dictated to the uh, different sections what he wanted them to do. And uh, with a little uh, manipulation here and there, uh, it turned out uh, <laughs> you know, just an unprecedented success. When I was a kid and I'd, I'd heard Cherokee a lot, when I found out that Billy May had arranged it, I wasn't surprised because I think the, the key thing about Billy May's work is his sense of humor. He is always having a good time. And he actually said somewhere, uh, I'm lucky to have made a living all my life at music. A lot of people who want to make a living at music, they end up flipping hamburgers or working in a garage or something. And so as long as I've been able to do this, I want to have fun too. And I want everybody who works for me or with me to have fun. And that was Charlie Barnett's attitude. I was with Charlie for another year or so. And then uh, somebody came from the Shribman office in uh, Boston and told me to go see Glenn Miller on Monday when I'm off in New York and we go back. So I went in to see him and Glenn was there waiting for me and his wife, Helen. And uh, he wanted to know if I would like to come with his band and I said, well, yeah, he offered me a lot, a lot of money compared to Charlie. He offered me right then and there a hundred and a half a week. So I tried to figure, well, I'll, I said, I'll let you know when I talk to Charlie, you know. And he said, no, he says, I want to know right now. He was hip to that crap, you know. So uh, I decided I'd take the job because it, the money was so good, you know. The two bands were completely different. Charlie Barnett was a very loose, swinging band. I think it had been referred to by George T. Simon of the Metronome magazine as the blackest white band of them all. Now, Glenn Miller was completely different, and the reason May went with Miller was because of money. Miller offered him so much money that Barnett couldn't match it, so Charlie had to let him go. When he went with Miller, though, there was, it was quite a change. It was, uh, well, the difference between black and white, really. The money was good, so he did stay with them, but it was very rigid. Once a, a, a solo had been uh, committed to wax and an arrangement had been committed to a recording, there was no changing it. But uh, May did stay with him, and apparently Miller was that good a musician that Billy felt he was learning uh, not only the business of music, but also adding to his uh, table of, uh, of arrangements. Miller was a bundle of resentments, I think was the phrase. Years and years later, Billy May described him that way. He was a businessman, and he was a, a taskmaster, and he was punctilious and so forth. And he was nothing like as much fun as Charlie Barnett was. Billy May only wrote a fraction of the arrangements for Miller that he had written for Barnett, and um, Miller didn't record most of them. Glenn was a pretty good arranger, I have to say that for him. 
he knew a lot about running a band, and he was a, a businessman. He wasn't as bad as Lawrence Welk, but he was a very exacting guy, and he, and he demanded you, you do what you want. And the contrast between his strict, you know, uh, towing the line, wearing the same socks and everything like that every night, that was very strict compared to with Charlie's band, which was, you know, New Year's Eve every, every night, you know. It was just wonderful, anything. So it was a big contrast for me. For Miller, he, he would uh, publish his stuff or allow it to be printed with the name Arletta May on it. Uh, Arletta was his wife's name. This is a good story because he still had a writing contract with Charlie Barnett, but the Glenn Miller arrangements, I guess, were published under the name Ar Arletta May. And then he got divorced and gave all those arrangements and the royalties on them to his wife as part of the divorce settlement. And then in 53 or 54, when they made the film The Glenn Miller Story, they used some of that work in the soundtrack of the film, and Arletta got 12,000 bucks. And Billy May didn't get a dime, which uh, that was a lot of money in 1953. I'm sure there's a romantic lesson in there for us all. Darn if I know what it is. So, although the money was great, Billy, who also once quipped, Hitler's still alive, he's playing for Glenn Miller down in South America, was not too disappointed when the Glenn Miller Band played its last show in New Jersey on September 27, 1942. This brought to an end the most popular group in American dance band history. But it was Arletta May who was to influence the next phase in Billy's career. World War II was in the news, and Billy May knew he'd be called up for active service. Rather than leaving Arletta alone on the East Coast, they decided to head back west to Los Angeles, where she could be with her parents. In the end, Billy was to be spared the battlefield since he was declared 4F, unfit for active service due to scar tissue on his lungs from a childhood bout of bronchial pneumonia. Let loose by Uncle Sam, Billy went to town on the Los Angeles music scene, playing club gigs with Woody Herman, Bob Crosby, and Paul Martin, and television shows with Ozzie Nelson and Bing Crosby. Having caught this glimpse of the lucrative world of television, it seemed the obvious direction for May to move. And as luck would have it, he just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Well, here we are deep in the Wildwood, where Bugs Bunny, the famous rabbit, lives. He's just about the smartest rabbit in the world. He should be around here someplace. I wonder where he is. Looking for me? Right over here in this hollow log. What's up, Doc? I'm kind of busy. There's a hunter on my trail and I'm hiding from him in here. Little tiny bird, my name is Tweety Pie. I live inside my bird cage, uh, hanging way up high. I like to swing upon my perch and sing my little song. But there's a cat that's after me and won't let me alone. I tore, I tore a putty cat, a tweepin' upon me. I did, I tore a putty cat as plain as he could be. It was at the beginning of Capitol Records. That's when Paul Weston was doing all the work over there. And when he found out I was available, he asked me to ghost for him on a couple of things. So I got in with Capitol very soon and started doing a lot of work for them. And I did a whole bunch of children's records for them. I 
I taught I taught a putty tat is one of my big hits from that period. The hierarchy of Capitol Records wanted to start a children's series. This is uh, uh, just after the World War II. Shortly after the war, with all the people returning from the hostilities and starting families, there was a feeling in the industry that now would be a good time to start a children's series. And uh, from that association of Alan Livingston and Billy May came the, the wonderful series of, uh, of children's records, original, all original material. Then Billy did so many imaginative arrangements. You, you can feel his sense of humor coming through there. And he does have a wonderful sense of humor. But I can never catch him. It throws me in a rage. You bet I'd eat that little bird if I could just get near. But every time that I approach, this is all I hear. I taught, I taught a putty cat a tweeping upon me. I did, I taught a putty cat as well as he could be. I understand from both Alan Livingston and Billy May that I Thought I Taught Putty Tat, which was a collaboration of theirs, still brings in royalties, probably 50 years after it was originally written. Probably not much now, but, but it still brings in royalties. It's still that uh, heard around the world. Come on now, like a good cat. Oh, all right. Suffer and suck a tag. I taught, I taught a pretty cat a creeping upon me. I did, I taught a pretty cat as plain as he could be. was known as the swingingest and fastest arranger. But maybe he's most famous for the sense of humor in his writing. His vivid imagination just couldn't resist throwing in some little joke, just for the sheer hell of it. But there was one other defining feature of a May score. The main thing that he's identified with in the early 50s, the thing that actually makes his name and leads to him getting a recording contract and, and forming a big band at a time when big bands were actually almost in the decline, is the so-called slurping saxophone sound. Kier Kitely is Assistant Professor of Information and Media Studies at Middlesex College, Ontario, and the author of Sinatra's Capital, Celebrity, Masculinity, and Taste. has this scooping effect, this glissando that he does with a saxophone section that uh, is heard to best effect, I think, on his first really big hit, which is called Lean Baby from the early 50s. Billy came up with uh, a style that has identified him ever since. The sliding, <laughs> sliding or slurping saxophone sound was something that he admired in such players as Willie Smith, um, a saxophone player, Johnny Hodges, Joe Thomas. Some of these instrumentalists from other bands, soloists, had a, a way of sliding up to a note when they were playing solos or ensemble. 
and uh, that became very identifiable. It separated Billy's band from the rest. He was on a new and higher musical plane. His treatment of the saxophones, then the beautifully melodic trombones in background behind them, and then tightly muted trumpets. Uh, there were three distinct sections moving along, plus a two-beat rhythm section. That just got everybody excited, not only the capital executive, but the musicians in the band, when they heard the playback, they gave it the thumbs up. May, in fact, might have been a, a bit of a play on the cliché uh, saxophone-heavy sounds that some of the, quote, sweet bands, unquote, of this swing era specialized in, which were not slurping saxes so much as syrupy saxes. You have to understand the, the larger context of the impact of radio on music in the period in the 1940s and 1950s. And Billy May's arranging style uh, really comes out of an, an interest in developing what were called novelty sounds. Partly because on radio you wanted to have instantly recognizable band sounds so that you could tell that's the Glenn Miller Orchestra that's the Benny Goodman Orchestra and so on, you started to have a, a, an increasing development of different kinds of arranging styles that were unique, that were remarkable, that stood out. And I mean, this is of course where the word novelty comes from, the novel, the new, the different. Creating such a distinctive big band sound, May simply had to take his troupe on the road. But May said, I never enjoyed being a band leader. When someone would come up to me and say, could you please play Happy Birthday to Myrtle? I was just as apt to tell him what Myrtle could do with her birthday, and that ain't the way Lawrence Welk does it. Because the Billy May Orchestra was very popular and heavily booked, Billy took the brave decision to hand his baby over to Bob Dawes, the road manager, so he could return to the creative waters of the Los Angeles recording studios. As luck would have it, Capitol had become a second home to the biggest name in popular music, Frank Sinatra. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. 
Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. The famous story is that when it came time for the, his first date, I was out on the road with the band, and so they talked Nelson into making the arrangements and hiring the same guys, and he did. I'd never seen any of it, you know. And the record came out, Frank Sinatra, with Billy May and his band, and Nelson did it for me. So then it was a good thing for Nelson because that was his introduction to working for Sinatra. And he continued to work for him, and it was very successful. Then a couple of years later, Sinatra decided he wanted to do something with me, and I did one of his most successful albums, uh, Come Fly With Me, yeah. And then I did a whole bunch more with him, and then I got involved with him when uh, he was breaking up, wanted to break out of Capitol and start reprise records. And it was a lot of fun, though. I enjoyed it, you know. Weather-wise, it's such a lovely day. Sinatra was more unbuttoned and displayed more of a sense of humor when he was working with Billy May on albums like Come Fly With Me. Billy May would have encouraged that. He would have insisted on it. You, you had to have a good time when Billy May was around. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Well, I think in the case of his work with Frank Sinatra, he brought not only a sophisticated sense of what an arranger needs to do to support and underline and assist a, a singer and not get in the way of the singer, but also he brought a, a sense of playfulness, a sense of a kind of free-spirited, romping adventure that someone like Sinatra, who had a persona, a public persona of a similar kind, you know, a kind of adventurer, a swinger, someone who was very playful, not always very serious. I think Billy May brought an ability to, to highlight those aspects and to complement those sides of Sinatra. And you hear that especially on, on a song like Come Fly With Me, where you have all these different kinds of uh, musical effects swirling around Sinatra, creating this sense of being in an airplane and flying and having fun. Angels cheer, cause we're together. For one thing, you better listen to the singer. And uh, Billy listened. And also, one of the tricks is to stay out of the singer's way. While supporting the singer on the one hand, you can't um, step on what he's doing. So it takes a real discretion to write that kind of stuff. He, Billy had it, Nelson Riddle had it. They have a flair for letting the song be heard. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly. Pack up, let's fly away. The words that come up repeatedly when people talk about Billy May are words like buoyant, witty, playful. Frank Sinatra called him driving. Sinatra said, in fact, that recording with Billy May was like having a bucket of cold water thrown in your face. I think there was a sense with Billy May that life was to be lived, the moment was to be seized. But also in his personal life, he's well known as a bon vivant, someone who liked to eat and drink and party and have fun. Gonna make a sentimental journey. Billy says he's through with music now and doesn't have an unrecorded symphony lying around. But he will always give a great deal of pleasure to all of us who have had the opportunity to visit our local record store and listen to his enormous body of work. Band-leading thanks to the maestro, Billy May, for honoring us with his swinging contributions, and to our sidemen, writers Gene Lees, Jack Myrtle, 
Keir Kitely, and Donald Clark, and webmaster Brad Bigelow. Always in the groove thanks to the woman who conducts me, my producer, Elizabeth Clark. Next week, I hope you'll step into the Batmobile as Robin and I take you on an adventurous ride into the music of Gotham City with bassy band arranger Neil Hefty. Until then, I'll be Richard Niles, the kid from Chiswick, your cute little darling, counting the bassy moments right here on Radio 2 for The Arrangers. Radio Richard is a unique collection of my interviews with fellow creators, revealing not only how they do that voodoo that they do so well, but why. So please, like, share, subscribe, and donate so I can keep this channel going and give you this great content. Radio Richard, be informed, be amazed, be inspired. <laughs>